I mean, the oh. baby could come really anytime now. I'm 36 weeks. And wow. Yeah. Very exciting. It is very exciting. <laughs> yeah, but it means I'm, oh my gosh, I'm moving a little slower. I'm a little more sore. As, as you should. As yes. You should. <laughs> yeah. This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by a returning guest all the way back from episode 79. It's been a whole year since we last chatted. She's a registered clinical counselor in private practice here in Vancouver. Her areas of clinical practice and research focus on the intersection of spirituality and mental health, and her expertise also include trauma therapy, eating disorders, body image, and sex. She is the host of the popular CBC podcast, Other People's Problems, which features therapy sessions between herself and different clients. Other People's Problems just launched its fourth season, so get it wherever you listen to this podcast. She is Hillary McBride. Hillary, how are you? Oh, it's so good to hear from you. It's so good to be with you. I'm doing well today, particularly on a sunny May day in I Vancouver. Know. I mean, <laughs> you know how we get about our sunny days in Vancouver. They do something. People are like high-fiving on the street. There are shorts that I'm seeing. I'm in shorts I'm right seeing. now. You can't see me, but I'm in shorts right now. <laughs> Shorts make an appearance as soon as there's like the clouds part. So I'm feeling that same kind of sunny mood and and pleased to be with you. I am so happy to hear from you. I'm honored that you'd come back. And you're oh, right. I think you. there is not just the sunshine, but there is an optimism that's kind of sweeping the mm. city. And I want to talk to you about that. And by the way, congratulations on the baby. It's on its oh. way. This is public mm -hmm. information. It's on your Instagram. It so it is. very exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. So I might not be one of your clients on other people's problems, but the last time we spoke on Mike, I felt so good, so empowered. And I think I need that boost right, mm. right about now. And I, like I said, okay. people are feeling good, but I need just an extra oomph as we head into the summer. Okay. And you're hoping that I provide that for you. So I'm uh, subtext there. Yeah. Lots of pressure. Lots of pressure. <laughs> okay, I know okay. <laughs> <laughs> the last time we spoke, interestingly, there was actually also a lot of optimism around the pandemic here in Vancouver because the numbers were looking pretty good and Vancouver enjoyed a pretty lax summer, all things considered. And of course that changed in the fall and Obviously, now with vaccinations, there's a restart plan. It seems like things will actually go back to quote-unquote normal very soon. And I think that's what's also created a lot of optimism. But more and more, I'm hearing about this idea of pandemic whiplash, like a mix between the euphoria but also caution. I mean, the pandemic was a turbulent time in British Columbia alone, we're talking about 1,700 deaths, an event mm -hmm. for over a year that changed everyone's lifestyle, even when it was, you know, not as serious. It was kind of lax last summer, at least here. In terms of a cultural psyche, we might all be excited now, but is there going to be pandemic whiplash or shell shock as we begin to transition back to the way things used to be? Mm, what a great question. You know, this, the phrase return to normal is such an interesting phrase to use mm -hmm. because it implies that the normal that was normal when we started using that phrase is still normal. And that's not the case. We've adapted as a society. We, our nervous systems have adapted our capacity in terms of where we get of our energy, what we're used to, the mm -hmm. amount of social interaction that we can tolerate, the amount of screen time we're expecting that we have also gotten used to. Though there is a new normal that's here. And mm. so in a way we can say we're returning back to what we remember pre-pandemic, but it's going to take some adjustment for us. Mm. And so pandemic whiplash, um, what, really whatever we want to call it, as people, we have the capacity to hold feelings about multiple things at the same time. Mm. 
And it's important for us to acknowledge that we're probably going to be feeling some complexity here. There will be some joy and some relief in the resumption of the things that we long for, that we miss. There will still be grief. There will probably be some anxiety and fear. There will be some social anxiety and and awkwardness, even in interpersonal interactions, Mm -hmm. as we encounter people who have different preferences or levels of um, safety or comfort around certain measures of proximity. So, What I think we need to do is we need to anticipate that this coming season for us will be a season rich with emotion and rich with change, and that although we couldn't necessarily predict the pandemic in the way that it was all going to play out and what was going to happen, we have the ability right now to stand here and say, there are some changes that are coming that we can anticipate. And let's be gracious with ourselves and other people as we find our way into kind of a new rhythm that is not mm. going to be like it was before. And it's not going to be like the one that we just came through. It's going to be have to have to be something new as we make space for the complexity of all the feelings, the losses, the excitements, the joys, and the uncertainty that comes with that. And so it's not all roses and puppy dogs and rainbows, right? Well, I- I mean, even wonderful experiences that we typically celebrate as being really meaningful in a person's life come with huge amounts of stressors. Mm -hmm. Things like buying a house or having a baby or getting married or graduation or starting new school, like Mm -hmm. any of these things that we think of as being milestones or significant, they're also kind of stressful on some level. And I can imagine that this will be similar to that, that we will be encountering some some novelty, some some fear, some uncertainty, mm-hmm. and that that's allowed to be there. I'm going to tell you a story. You know, I, I was I'm with ready. a couple of friends outside, and we were joined with someone that I hadn't met before. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, hi, I'm Mo. And this person unwittingly stuck their hand out, and I paused for a second. Right. And I was like, yeah, why not? And I shook her hand. And it was like a collective gasp from everyone. Mm, Of course. (laughs) And while we're shaking hands, this other person was like, oh, my God, what am I doing? And then I was like, it feels good, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, that's a small, light example. But I almost felt like in a a microcosm, this kind of encapsulated a certain expectation of this transition ahead of us, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we do have knee-jerk things that we do without even thinking, like sticking your hand out when you first meet someone. You know, we do have those moments of consciousness where we go, oh, my God, this person just stuck their hand out and they want to shake shake my hand. Right. And then we do have that response of everyone else being like, oh, my God, what's happening? <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> or the other way, you know, the people who say... I don't want to expose myself. I don't want to put myself at risk and everyone else saying, no, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can actually do that. Like there are multiple angles from which to see that experience. And it's really important to remember that at any given point, we could be the person in the crowd gasping, or we could be the person sticking our hand out, or we could totally. be the person retracting our hand or the person who says, but doesn't this feel good? <laughs> don't you want to do this with me? It's kind of like these parables that we hear from our spiritual traditions where it's important for us to remember that we can take each different position in the parable as a way of empathy building. Like Mm -hmm. there will be a point at which we are each of those characters. And that I think remembering that helps us have more compassion for ourselves and each other as we navigate the awkwardness of what's about to come. Absolutely. And I'm really curious about what this looks like in terms of when you greet people, because I almost feel like and it's always paramount, but even more so, and, and certainly more front of mind, consent is even more paramount, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of handshakes and hugs. It really is about your comfort level. You're not expected to shake someone's hand anymore or, right. re- you know, receive that hug or, or whatever. And I am curious how we will adjust. You know, I, I don't know if we'll just slump back into the way it used to be. Or if there will be this hyper-consciousness of empathy and respecting everyone's boundaries, which we didn't really have before, right? You were mm. you were kind of expected to shake someone's hand, or if someone gave you a hug, you were kind of expected to kind of go with it. Right. Or there were the people who 
who didn't do that because mm. of whatever reason, um, preferences around physical safety or have a tr- people who have a trauma history or mm-hmm. people who wanted to have maybe more nuanced conversations around body boundaries, but they were considered to be the socially ostracized ones. Those were the people right. who kept having to say, no, it's okay for me to assert my body boundaries in public spaces. And just because you're used to doing X, Y, Z in a social context doesn't mean that that you can assume that I'm going to go along with that. And now what I've noticed is that there are a number of people who actually feel very relieved that we're having these conversations around how to navigate social spaces and touch and proximity, because it feels like there is in the collective consciousness and awareness that we should be attentive to other people Mm -hmm. and perhaps um, be thoughtful and conscious of the things that otherwise were previously unconscious, including what do we say yes to the the right for other people to determine what feels good for them and feel safe for them in terms of their body? And I mean, I can speak as being a pregnant person that not having people reach out and touch my belly <laughs> sure. involuntarily without requesting permission has been this unexpected gift of being pregnant during the pandemic because I've heard for people who have been pregnant in other seasons of life and other time periods that that's an expectation that you have a public body mm-hmm. that because you're in a public space people have the right to touch you and to touch your pregnant belly and and so what I love about this is all of the space has allowed me room to determine who gets into my kind of into my zone and touches my body mm-hmm. and and I think it's representative of one of the things that's happening on a larger scale, that we are hopefully becoming more conscious of proximity. I imagine that right. with that consciousness is going to come some anxiety moving forward. Like I notice even myself thinking about being in a public space or a public event. If I watch a movie and I see people at a concert in a crowd, some of my, right. oh, you know, my heart races a little bit and I think like, oh, what's that going to be like when we do that next? So we're going to have to be really gentle with supporting ourselves to remind our nervous systems that everything that they learned, you know, everything our precious nervous systems learned to keep us safe mm-hmm. during the pandemic about what is dangerous and what is, you know, what we need to be hypervigilant around, it's changing again, mm-hmm. actually quite quickly. And it's going to be a little scary for the first while. Well, I've been on record on the CBC saying that I cannot wait to be in that hot, sweaty, sticky crowd <laughs> where some big guy spills beer all over okay. me. I, I'm excited for that. <laughs> and I will say, you know, I've, I'm, I'm trying to think of if I've touched other pregnant bellies. There's only one that comes to mind. I asked okay. for consent. It was a good friend of mine. Good. It was a cool experience for me. Uh, I mean, it was probably very mundane because, as, as you said, there was that there was that weird thing where people just assumed that they could do that. Am I a bad person because I used to shame my male friends if they didn't want to hug? I would say, "Come on, I thought we were bros." <laughs> does, that, does that make so me a bad person in the past? <laughs> in a past pre-pandemic life. Well, I think, you know, if if I'm going to actually answer your question honestly, which I'll try Please. to do here, I don't think anything that you do or not do can make you a bad person, though. <laughs> so this is my, <laughs> I'll show my philosophical kind of humanistic cards here. But what I will say is like, I have, I feel two feelings about that. Mm-hmm. One, I love the idea of male intimacy in a kind of non-pathologized way. Like, this is so beautiful to think about men embracing each other. I think that's fantastic. We need more of that as we undo the legacy of toxic masculinity in a patriarchal culture. And right? Mm -hmm. Thinking about consent is really lovely. Like, can we hug? Or like, is that that okay with you? Or, oh my gosh, just reading body cues when you get close to somebody, you're knowing what people's comfort level is because you've talked about it once and you have this felt sense of safety that, you know, you can do that with each other. I think that those are really good things to But I was going one step further and and if they were kind of uncomfortable being like, what? I thought we were bros. Like I would shame, I would shame them. Right. So good Good to put that on ice. Not a super helpful strategy for building closeness and intimacy, although very effective for creating behavioral change because mm. people don't love to be shamed. Uh, so they tend to do whatever you want them to, to not feel shame. But uh, perhaps you'll have more tools in your toolkit now around. Yeah, I, I'm coming out of this pandemic uh, <laughs> yeah. completely changed person. Absolutely. Oh my goodness, completely. Wow. <laughs> on, on a more serious note, I almost wonder about uh, something that you kind of touched on 
this idea of collective grieving and mm. how much grieving we have to do. I mean, some people did lose family members. And even if it's not to that seriousness, quote unquote, we all lost a lot of time, a lot of community, a lot of human connection or rituals that we lost. Yes. On this podcast, you know, we particularly discuss this idea of collective grief and grieving with Teresa Campbell and this idea of how we kind of live in a grief avoidance society as well. We like to, mm -hmm. you know, put it into, okay, you get this day for a funeral or, okay, give yourself an hour to calm down or whatever, and then we're all expected to move on. Do you think that we are equipped to collectively grieve the time, the people, the rituals, the community that we lost for over a year? Hmm, what a beautiful question. I think that at our essence as people, we are equipped to, I think it's written into us to know how to feel sadness and to know how to be in community with other people when we're feeling sadness. I think that our cultural landscapes um, shape that out of us in a way, or they make it taboo or unfamiliar, or there's some shame or fear that comes up around that. But I would say at our very essence, we know how as people, you don't have to teach a baby how to cry, hmm. right? These are things that we just are born knowing how to do. And our theories of affective neuroscience tell us that, that written into our DNA is the capacity to be close with other people and to feel our sadness in connection with them. Mm -hmm. Do we have the cultural frameworks to do that? Um, I think that there are some faith traditions that do. There are some faith contexts that are much better at making space for certain kinds of pain and allowing that. I certainly also know certain cultural contexts. I think about some of my kind of indigenous friends uh, who have really beautiful, rich traditions around making space for pain and loss and death mm -hmm. in the way that we don't in a kind of... Um, like settler colonial, colonial culture. But I don't think collectively, kind of in a Western context, it's something that we know how to do very well. And I think it's because we're extremely death avoidant. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because we're also really feelings avoidant. And sadness and the ability to be with sadness is a skill uh, to know how to steward that well, right? We're all born with the capacity to feel sadness, but how we deal with it and how we do it in a way that is honoring and healthy and connective, those are skills that many of us haven't learned how to kind of manage or develop. So I, I do think that there, this will, if it hasn't already expose some deficit culturally. And I think that any time a deficit culturally individually, interpersonally is exposed, it always comes with an opportunity for us to lean in and to grow and to equip ourselves and each other to do something different. So my hope is that as we see the sticky, awkward, uncomfortable, clunky places around navigating grief, mm -hmm. that instead of repressing it even more, we lean in and we make more spaces and we have more conversations and we ask questions like the one that you're asking to help expose what could we do differently so that we can heal through this? But what about all the big corporations that are telling us about how important mental health is? Aren't they equipping us with the tools we need to collectively grieve or, or grieve individually? I actually can't tell if, is that, I was like, is that a joke? <laughs> or are you serious? <laughs> no, that's most definitely a joke. Okay, thank you. I was like, I don't, if, you're, if that's not a joke, I'm not sure how to answer that. But like even, okay, let's take my example, other people's problems. Mm -hmm. Other People's Problems is a great resource for shifting social stigma around accessing therapy Absolutely. and naming mental health issues. It is not a substitute for feeling your own feelings. Mm. It is not going to give you the experiential skill to actually be with your own pain. It might remind you that it's okay. It might show you how other people do it. It mm -hmm. might model for you that on the other side, there can be vitality and joy and healing. And just because you touch your sadness doesn't mean you're going to stuck, be stuck in it forever. But what's really important to note around emotion is that the intellectual part of our brain that learns insight or picks up cultural stories around what's okay and what's not okay is a completely different set of neural structures than the ones that experience and do the actual feeling. Mm. So naming your feeling isn't even feeling your feeling. Talking about the things that make you sad isn't even being with your sadness. Hmm. So 
it's great that we're having more conversations, but that's not really a substitute to the experiential element of being with your emotion in a way that moves it through you and, and metabolizes it, essentially. Mm-hmm. I love that distinction. And I think it's one that's really important to make because, you know, I was obviously being very tongue in cheek in my question, right. but right. I do find, and it's, you know, it is nice that obviously we are trying to break down certain stigmas. But I almost feel like the cultural dialogue, at least in the mainstream, is very stuck in terms of like, yeah, mental health's important, period. <laughs> and, right. and then it doesn't move right. on beyond like, <laughs> what do you do? What's the next step? Or, you know, how do I check in, in my uh, with myself? And that's actually where I kind of get cynical with a lot of these corporatized uh, messages around mental health, where it's like, Okay, that's great that we're recognizing this, but are we actually giving people the tools? Mm. And 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 you know, I I I appreciate what your show does. I think you're correct in saying, you know, it's not doing the work for you, but at least it is showing the types of conversations that people are having about their own lives and it's showing the types of tools that are used to explore these things and to sit with those feelings. So again, it's not doing the work, but it is at least giving a roadmap or just examples for other people. Yeah. Great distinction. The roadmap versus actually taking the drive. Mm -hmm. Those are two separate things. And you, (laughs) you probably need them both. And sometimes we're not given the roadmap. So we hire someone to be in the room with us who has the roadmap, but the actual being on the drive and taking the journey is uh, is an experiential element that we're not going to get just by having conversations that stop at mental health is important, mm-hmm. exactly like you said. Shifting gears here, out of this pandemic, there seems to be a lot of evidence that people are quitting their job, certainly mm-hmm. rethinking work-life balance. And obviously, a lot of people have had the luxury of being able to work from home. So they're they're having these conversations. You would almost think that, I mean, I guess I would almost think that in a traumatic situation, in a time of a lot of change, there would be an emphasis on holding on to what's safe or familiar. So is there something to that? Like, are people actually seeking change? I mean, there is stats about people, you know, mass exodus of people just leaving their Hmm. jobs. Or... Are we actually going to try to go back to our old habits, good, bad, and everything in between? Right. Well, responses to trauma vary based on people's intra-psychic landscape, their trauma histories and whatnot. And we often think about the responses to trauma being fight, flight, freeze, fawn, mm. feign death. I mean, there's so many different ways that we can respond to things that are otherwise overwhelming and unmanageable. So I want to make wide make a wide space for lots of different reactions because there are certainly are some people who are finding themselves overwhelmed with the amount of change and their response has been to, to double down or grip tighter on the things that they know. And there's this other response that we're seeing where people are leaning into the change and there can be a few reasons for that, right? There can be, um, One, that people are finding themselves disempowered by the lack of control that they have. And so one of the ways that we uh, compensate is that we think about what we can intentionally change. If things Mm. are changing around us and that feels scary, well, how about I lean into what can work for me, which might be, okay, what can I control? What can I change? What can I navigate? Um, and feel like I have some agency around. Mm -hmm. And then there's another thing that I've noticed happening. And this, we didn't talk about this last time I was on the podcast, but I'm the principal investigator for a research study, which is looking at people's experiences of growth and thriving during the pandemic. And these are not people who have, you know, everything that they want in their life to make them comfortable. These are people who include, you know, people have some degree of financial stability, but also people who have lost their jobs or have had family members pass away or have had huge identity shifts or, you know, what have you. And what's fascinating about the data that we found, so this is this like important empirical finding is that sometimes the pandemic has shaken people loose from the structures that were never working for them. Mm. And so there is a sense of, I'm actually more connected to myself now because I realized that I was in this rut of a kind of mundane or habitual existence where I was 
living out the story for my life that was handed to me with a kind of automaticity. And when the pandemic came along and shook me from some of those structures or defenses or ways of coping or busy routines that kept me numb, I encountered myself again. And when I encountered myself, I realized that some of the things that I was existing within, the paradigms, the ways of being, the coping, et cetera, it didn't reflect who I actually want to be in this life. Right. So change is sometimes this thing that we that we lean into because it helps us feel like uh, we can get agency. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's probably also a subset of the population. I mean, I encountered these people in this research study where the change has loosed them from things that felt incongruent with their sense of identity. And I imagine that that there are lots of reasons why people end up in one category or the other. And we mentioned kind of past trauma history as being one of those things. But I think that any time that things are upset, it gives us an opportunity to look at our lives and to say, what is important to me? And there's going to be a group of people who look at their lives through the pandemic and post-pandemic and realize that what they had before was what mattered most to them. Mm-hmm. And there will be a group of people, as I mentioned, who were looking at their lives and say, oh, I want to be in my own life more. And I think I was in someone else's version of my life before. I love that so much. And it's confirming something that I've seen around me. I, mm-hmm. I've had a few friends, and, and I probably am part of this as well, where I've just made big changes in my life or rethought different things. And I've asked, you know, I've had friends move and some have quit their jobs as well. And, right. and I, if I'm close enough to them, I'll say, you know, what, what brought this on? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the common response and something that I was also thinking of is like this pandemic almost brought out the invisible shackles or even like the invisible brass rings that we're trying to reach for and just – thinking like, oh, this is, there's not only one way to do this. There's right, different right. ways. And why can't I work from home? Or why can't I start my own business? Or why can't I live somewhere else? Mm-hmm. And suddenly, because of all this turmoil, you just realize, like, oh, all these things are possible. <laughs> and either right. someone convinced us or we convinced ourselves that this status quo that we were in is the only way to be. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I like that you you kind of confirm that because that's something that me personally, I've been thinking about a lot in terms of, you wow. know, is this the path for me or did I just make this up? Is it just completely invisible? And actually, there's many other paths and maybe some that will serve me better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what a wonderful time for us to explore that where uh, there's a little less noise around us. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe there's more noise inside of us if we feel anxious or distressed. But I certainly know that when everything quieted down initially, I, I met myself in a new way. Mm-hmm. My schedule was emptier and I thought, okay, what really matters and what's really going on inside of me? And I have found a new rhythm and a new way to adapt to the COVID life. But as things start to change again, again, it's another agitation, another way to see what needs to be seen. So maybe the things that we uh, that we asked at the beginning of the pandemic, we find ourselves asking again in this season. Or it's other questions like, who are the people I really do want to spend time with mm-hmm. now that I you know, can start seeing people again? Where do I want to put my energy now that I have the opportunity to be in certain spaces and to be thoughtful about our lives? I mean, I can't imagine how that would ever be detrimental to us. Exactly. And you know what? I'm going to be flaking on all the right people. Right. Well, I guess they're all the wrong people. <laughs> No, no, I'm, I'm flaking on all the wrong people. I know what you mean. And I'm yeah. keeping commitments with all the right people. That's what that's what I meant to say. <laughs> right, exactly. And maybe, I mean, people are going to use different language around that. But mm-hmm. I think we have to make space for the fact that our relationships are not going to look the same as they used to before mm-hmm. the pandemic. And that there's going to be such value in people saying things like, I I can't make plans every night of this week like I used to, or like mm-hmm. there there have been lots of things that have get, come up for me in terms of opportunities. And I'm just noticing my capacity for social engagement is lower hmm. on this side of the pandemic. And so I'm going to have to say no to that party or that thing. And I think we're going to have to get really good at knowing that we don't have to personalize that. Mm-hmm. That's people just just being with themselves in a new way. And maybe that will be another layer of grief for many of us. Mm-hmm. 
Now, without giving too much away, I love the first episode of season four of Other Thank People's you. Problems because it delves into mommy guilt and reconciling self-identity with motherhood. And interestingly enough, I've kind of touched on a lot of these themes on this podcast, on This is Van Collar, at the start of the year at least. And it's it's really fascinated me. We've, we've covered a lot of things about uh, motherhood and entrepreneurship, motherhood and childcare in particular. What has the pandemic taught us, shown us, exacerbated maybe about the burdens of contemporary motherhood or contemporary parenthood? Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's exposed the gendered nature of kind of is some, the way that we see systemic oppression enacted mm. on women, that there is still those who are women, women identified, born as kind of into the socialization, into the, the tradition of womanhood, carry this, this emotional burden. They carry this relational responsibility. I think it's part of the gifting of being socialized as a woman, but also one of the challenges. And I think I've seen from so many people in my life and uh, my clients, and I've seen this in the media as well, that the burden on women and mothers to carry the relational, childbearing, family, household, interpersonal load has has been exposed. Mm-hmm. That it has cost women again and again and again in terms of their their stability at work, their ability to cope, their sense of individuality, that often it was the moms who were staying home to do childcare when kids were no longer in school. And that has an impact on their ability to thrive in their workplace and their ability to have space in their own life for themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. the whole paradigm of the double shift that people have been talking about since the feminist revolution. I think it was all really obvious here that there was no escape for moms. Mm-hmm. So I think that the pandemic exposed that. Uh, I think it it reminds us that we need to do better in terms of distribution of labor and recognizing the ongoing way that patriarchy impacts family structures and workplace structures and child rearing. I mean, those all of those things felt really important. The disproportionate burden of child rearing while also being bombarded with messages about how you have to be a boss babe and <laughs> and a professional right. woman and all this other right. stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a lot to ask. <laughs> so much of parenthood is about emotional regulation, managing your own emotions, but also giving children the tools that they need to manage their emotions. The pandemic was certainly an emotional time for everyone. So what is a healthy way to process emotions? Because certainly suppressing, quote unquote, negative emotions like grief or sadness or anger isn't healthy, right? Right. Well, I I just have to applaud you on your statement, because even making the statement that emotion regulation is central to parenthood is actually a relatively new understanding culturally. Like this is something that we have known in the field of psychology for a very long time, mm-hmm. for decades and decades and decades. But it's actually new to have it work its way out into our social fabric and discourse. So congratulations, though. You were, you were ahead of so many people out there. <laughs> I'm glad that you're focusing on kind of the right things. Yeah, I'm all about we... the feelings. If it's about feelings, I'm Good. into it. So thank <laughs> you. So that works well for you. Yeah. <laughs> and so I just want to make sure I heard your question right. This is like, how do we emotionally regulate well? Or like, what? Yeah, like, how do, what we, do, we, do, with how do we do that in a healthy way? Because mm. we know... I mean, I think most people do recognize that you don't, you're not supposed to suppress right. anger or guilt or s- sadness. Like, that's not healthy, right? So, how right. do we actually process those very normal emotions and feelings? Oh, I just love this question. So what's important to know about feelings that most people aren't actually taught, although I think that there's there's a little bit of curriculum that's coming in in, in kind of our school system now that's allowing kids to develop this awareness at a younger age. But feelings are a physiological process. They're not just the labels that we give them. Mm-hmm. The words that we use and kind of the labeling of emotions, that's a cognitive process. And that gets us closer. It tells us what family that we're in a feeling and where to head with it. 
But what most people don't know is that the feeling of the feeling is actually somatic. It's bodily. It's experiential. As we mentioned before, it's the drive, not just the map, Mm. the ability to be on the journey. So to feel our feelings instead of just repressing them is to actually really be in tune with our body. It's to notice the pattern of sensation and energy that's changing and shifting in ourselves. In fact, we often think about emotion in terms of where the word directs us as emotion, energy in motion. Mm. So usually when we feel a feeling, we want to go into our body and notice where is the energy? Do I feel hot? Do I feel cold? Do I feel an impulse? Do I notice tightness? Do I have a sense of kind of um, a grating or a dropping feeling or an ache or a heaviness? And what's Mm. important to know about emotion and, and being with emotion is that emotion tends to come with some insight about what to do next. It tends to come with uh, some direction. And when we stay with the emotion long enough, usually it rises a little bit. We get a bit more awareness of those sensations. And then it comes down the other side. And it's when it's coming down the other side after it's crested that we get some insight like, oh, I didn't like that situation. I need to set a boundary or Mm -hmm. I need a hug Or, wow, I want to celebrate this excitement, this thing that's happened. (laughs) And these primary categories of emotions tend to come with what's called adaptive action tendencies. They come with things that they want us to do to help us move towards safety or thriving or connection or away from danger. And when we get into the emotion and we stay with it and we ride out that most intense part in the middle... That's when we know that we're going to be faithful to regulating or to staying with the emotion in a constructive way. Hmm. It's when we're with the emotion and we're just kind of in the peak of it or we're trying to repress it that we tend to do things that aren't the healthiest for us. We do things to get away from our feeling or we allow the intensity of the feeling to drive our decision making. And which so... That's part of why we want to stay with it in our bodies, but stay with it a little bit longer so that it softens a bit. And then when it's softened, we stay with the wisdom that the emotion was coming with, but we don't have to worry that we're going to be kind of at its mercy in the mm-hmm. same way as if we were in the heat of the moment. You know, we've all written those emails where we think, <laughs> I, wish I, could take, I wish I could take that back, <laughs> right? Usually that's when it would have been a good idea to like go for a walk and feel our feelings and like imagine the energy coming out of our hands yeah. or out of our feet into the earth. And then we write the email, not in the intensity of the moment. Right. So if you're feeling that physiological urge to cry, just cry it out before you send that text or that email. Right, right, exactly. And I think that the complexity that people often um, are encountering when they're learning to feel feelings is the way that our social structures and employment structures and relationships don't always allow for Mm -hmm. this level of fluidity. So people will say, okay, you're telling me something that I can understand would be really great if I was on my own or with my partner. But what if when I'm, what if I'm in a business meeting and I feel the urge to cry or to be angry or to celebrate something? And that's when it's really good to know that we can actually dialogue with our emotions and these parts of us and say, I'm going to come back for you later. Right? Mm. Anger, I see you. I see you're really important. I don't want for you to be driving this meeting right now. So we're going to have a little hangout session after my work day. <laughs> and I'm going to come back and I'm really going to listen to you. And we're going to do something about what you're trying to tell me about. But I can't do that right now. Right. And the difference between repression and regulation is knowing what's appropriate for the context and making sure that if we put something on the shelf that we come back to it. Mm. Like that's a way that we honor ourselves and the things that are stirring in us. And instead of them then getting shoved down and kind of exploding out the back door or the side door or whatever, we're giving ourselves everything that we need. But this is why we are imbo- like kind of these embodied beings that are mind and sensation is that it's important that mind and body work together to make the best decision for us in our social context, which is sometimes sadness. I'm coming for you later and you'll get all my attention later, right. but not right now. Yeah. Shifting gears here. I, I want to talk about the opposite end of emotion. So moving away from okay. sadness, I want to talk about happiness and joy and all that stuff. Something that I've discussed at length is toxic positivity. And it was Mm. actually my New Year's resolution to stop engaging in toxic positivity. Ah. So I feel like coming out of this pandemic, there may be a lot of grief. And maybe some folks will actually want to 
overcompensate for that Maybe because they feel like they're supposed to be happy. You know, the pandemic's right. almost over or it will be over. And like I said, I've been accused of this and I've been guilty of this as well. I'm generally a happy guy. That's just kind of my predisposition. But I think my positivity in the past has negated the feelings of others. Mm. At what point does positivity become toxic? And what should we, i.e. someone like me, ask ourselves if we think we're wading into that toxic territory of positivity? Right, yeah. I think that when there's positivity, hmm, I, I have almost have a hard time with the word because it's kind of a junk drawer term. Like it, it's not very specific in terms of what the emotion is on the inside of mm. us. So my thinking around toxic positivity or positivity in general is if you're actually feeling something enjoyable, see if you can notice what the feeling is about it. Instead of having to shift out of a feeling to tell a story that sounds like a really good story or an enjoyable story to tell, mm. I think that we probably know that we're heading into toxic positivity area when when we have a hard time staying with other people's painful stuff or acknowledging it or allowing it to coexist with the fact that we can be enjoying our lives or the moment. I think a, a really good example of this is that I also carry a significant amount of hope and joy and vitality and meaning and purpose inside of myself. Mm-hmm. But I'm a trauma therapist. And so I sit all day with people listening to their kind of the most horrific traumas or kind of the things that feel like everyday traumas in a way. And it actually doesn't take away from the deep-rooted sense of joy that I have in my life. Mm -hmm. But I don't need to shift their story to maintain or hold my own joy. So when we're shifting other people's stories to try to hold on to something that feels important to us, it probably actually means that we're quite defended against our own emotional pain. Mm. Toxic positivity can be a way that we are trying to support ourselves to manage what feels otherwise unmanageable, perhaps a pain in side that feels unbearable to touch. And so instead of touching it, we tell a story that's much more manageable. Right. I love the way you put it. mm -hmm. Like it's, that's what was explained to me is it's not necessarily even how I'm feeling because I might be authentically happy or, or joyful or whatever, but it's that practice of shifting away someone else's emotions mm-hmm. <laughs> towards or pushing them towards, oh, it'll be fine, right. silver linings, whatever. And right. I think that's a great way of putting it. So I like to ask people, if you're noticing something in another person and you feel the need to spin the story for them, ask yourself what that tells you about you. Mm. Instead of trying to shift their experience, allow that to, um, to bring into your own awareness a place that feels painful inside of you, that feels uncomfortable to tolerate. And usually what we'll notice when someone else is in their pain and we want to get out of it is that we actually feel quite anxious or uncomfortable. Mm. And we can ask ourselves, okay, what is uncomfortable for me about this? And sometimes where that road will lead us, not always, but sometimes it's, I haven't felt my own feelings about a situation that they're going through that reminds me of one that I've been through, or I'm scared of going through that, or if I touch the pain, will it go on forever? And usually our fears around being with sadness or despair or grief or loss or anger, uh, all of those fears around them tell us that we haven't known how to be with those things in a way that doesn't make us feel overwhelmed. So it can just expose our own deficit around processing challenging emotions. And the beautiful thing about this exposure is that you can't numb selectively. You can't numb painful things without also numbing the deep, rich, beautiful things that we want to feel. So if we notice an area of deficit exposed for us, and perhaps what exposes this is our toxic positivity, what it's inviting us to do is actually feel our pain so that our joy and the goodness that we experience is even deeper. Because when that joy is even deeper, it means that it's not, um, it's not going to be jeopardized by other people's pain. Right. So this like returns us to our pains so that then we can actually experience the fullness of all of the things that we're trying to with this mask that we're putting on top of it. I love that. You went so much more deeper than my understanding of toxic mm. positivity, but I think oh, I'm so glad. it's very important. Can we say that when it comes to something like joy or happiness, there is a practical limit? Because if you are an individual amongst other individuals— you can't be 
happy all the time. <laughs> right, right. Well, I think happiness happiness is a is an emotion and we're not meant necessarily to stay in emotion all the time. Mm. The way that I think about it comes from my theoretical framework, which is influenced by um, affective neuroscience and the work of psychologist Diana Fosha. But the idea is that we have this kind of core state of being, which at its root, we're wired to be calm and content and at ease and compassionate, connected to ourselves, connected to other people. And it's when something happens that emotion emerges to signal to us and to our tribe, hey, this is how you stay safe, or this is what you need, or this is what's missing, or this is mm. what feels good. So emotion is messages, it's information, but it's not necessarily meant to be the state that we're in constantly. Although there are exceptions to that, you know, grief can feel like a state when we've lost someone, we're sure. in sadness for an extended period of time. But the ability to recognize an emotion as something that comes and then goes, and hopefully what happens is we return to the state of rest and ease, might make us ask, well, if I'm constantly in a certain emotion, what's what's that trying to tell me? Or what messages have I not been paying attention to? Hmm. Perhaps it's sadness, right? If I'm constantly in sadness, what is that telling me? What is my body telling me about what's working or what's not working in my life? Right. And in the same way, if we are constantly in happiness, um, I might say, what are we not allowing ourselves to feel? Or is that even really a feeling or is that a defense against a feeling? Mm -hmm. Have we've gotten really good at shoving down our feelings and plastering <laughs> on a, you know, a smile to the point that that's not feeling anymore. That's kind of delusion. Yeah. So asking ourselves what in the range of the human experience am I not allowing myself to feel is a good question. But I think at our root, we're content people. I think that that's how our nervous systems are wired to be as much as our society sets us up to be anxious and kind of depressed and disconnected from each other. I think that we are wired and have the capacity to be very pleased with our lives. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some of the messages that we're getting from society as we wrap up the podcast here. Sure. We've heard that the next wave of the pandemic will actually be the fallout, the mental health crisis that uh. follows this. And we've kind of touched on a few areas already about this. I'm just wondering, as we reconnect with our communities, as we get into our new status quos, our new normals, what should we be looking in ourselves and maybe at those closest to us? Because we are hearing that there is going to be this mental health wave that that's coming. And, and we've already discussed this idea of collective grief as well. So what kind of things should we be looking for? Right. Well, I, I want to name just in terms of the framing of the question that I, as a, as a psychologist, I'm seeing us actually in the midst of this wave. It's not mm. just coming. There are people who are deeply struggling, who haven't ever struggled in this way before. And because we tend to not talk about these things in public ways, often the clinicians who are holding cultural, our kind of our culture together, holding our society together, our communities together, are the ones to see these things first. Mm. So there is already a mental health pandemic that's upon us. And I imagine that that there will be even more ripples of that as we move forward, I think, as you're suggesting. So some of the things that we want to look for are, are we notice behaviors, are we noticing behaviors that are a problem, things that are harming us or people around us? So substance use, or what about how much we're eating or our inability to eat healthy, balanced meals? Are we using food or substances to kind of manage our mood? What about how much we're sleeping? Are we sleeping more or less than is required for us or than we need? Mm. Are we doing too much? Are we burning ourselves out? Are we going really hard trying to connect with everyone we missed out on and not really tuning into ourselves? How's our mood? When we have an enjoyable experience, are we actually enjoying it? Or does it feel like this, we have something we call anhedonia, which is one of the diagnostic criteria around depression or one of the symptoms of depression for many people, which is the inability to enjoy pleasurable experiences. Hmm. It's like they were enjoyable before, but now they just don't have that same kind of quality or je ne sais quoi to them. Hmm. 
So uh, do I have a do I have an ability to enjoy these things? Am I noticing that things that were typical for me before create a lot of fear and distress? Am I avoiding situations, things that I would have done before that are actually safe for me to do? And I'm restricting the amount of, you know, things that I'm doing in my life, not because it feels like it's a, it's from a place of well-being, but I'm actually removing myself because I feel too anxious otherwise. So any of the things that we would typically look for, I mean, suicidality, have I, mm-hmm. do I have thoughts of harming myself? Do I have thoughts of ending my life? Do I find myself feeling worthless or hopeless? I mean, any of the questions that we would want to know if you were seeing your doctor or talking to your therapist, typically we want to keep an eye on those things inside of ourselves and the people, people around us and make sure that we normalize the checking in with each other and ourselves where we ask ourselves and each other, how, how are you really, how are you really doing? Mm-hmm. Even though there's an expectation that you're supposed to feel this way, how do you actually feel? And is there room for that? And can we make, can we honor what's coming up for you and get you what you need? I love that. And I think that's a very important lesson to constantly check in and ask how you're really feeling as opposed to how you think you're supposed to feel. Right, right, exactly. (laughs) Hillary, as always, this was amazing. As we wrap up, what is your call to action? Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) Feel your feelings. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, um, tend well to yourselves, be gracious with yourselves and other people, uh, and we'll get through this together. And bros hug bros. That's a good <laughs> if thing. If you consent, <laughs> if it feels right for you. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much, and, and all the best to you and your family. And of course, we'll be listening to Other People's Problems, season four, which is out now. People... Make sure you check out Other People's Problems, hosted by our guest today. She's a registered clinical counselor in private practice here in Vancouver. She is Hillary McBride, and I am Mo Amir, telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Hey, folks. I'm Mo Amir. This is Van Color. Last Friday, Vancouver police patrolled English Bay after 911 calls reported that someone had been harassing and assaulting pedestrians near the seawall. The suspect was described as a dark-skinned man in his 40s. The VPD's crackerjack sleuthing led four police officers to approach, surround, and detain retired BC judge Selwyn Romilly, who is 81, and black. Romley was handcuffed, at least momentarily, for officer safety, according to the VPD. To be clear, Romley was unarmed, and again, he's 81. And black. The VPD offered an explanation and an apology to Romley, although they failed to explain how four of their police officers mistook an 81-year-old for a suspect half that age. In their initial statement, the VPD didn't even acknowledge the fact that Romley is 81 and black. Their blasé response actually leaves the impression that this sort of thing happens all the time, unless, of course, the suspect is white, which is what Justice Romilly suggested. But according to VPD Chief Adam Palmer, systemic racism doesn't exist in Canadian policing, and the mere suggestion that it does is offensive. You'd figure that VPD Brass would explain to the public how, aside from being black, An octogenarian could be mistaken for someone in their 40s, and how immediate steps would prevent this unsettling and traumatic situation from ever happening again. But they didn't do that. And I don't know, maybe that's part of the problem. 